Hello and welcome to Textual Feelings. I'm Matty. And I'm Rosie. And this podcast is a monthly-ish conversation about genre-bending books, queer feminisms and political writing. been a while since we recorded an episode hence the monthly ish yeah um, but <laughs> what have we been doing Rosie that's a good question we've been busy with other things some exciting and some not so exciting but we did take part in the library talks at the Garrett Reitbard Academy last month where we talked about 10 books that have been integral to our practice which was really fun so we talked about three of the books we've already done episodes on and seven more so if you'd like to listen to that it's available online on our blog with all the other episodes but it feels great to be back and recording again in the studio especially without an audience waiting for us to say something interesting yeah it's very cozy just the two of us today and we're especially glad to be back because we've got such an incredible book to talk about with you today So in this episode, we'll be talking about Claudia Rankin's Don't Let Me Be Lonely, an American Lyric, which came out in 2004, published by Grey Wolf Press. This book can be seen as a precursor to her more recent and very popular Citizen. It maybe seems strange to go back to this one, as Citizen is the better known book and is incredibly pressing in its themes, but we think that this one is too. We recently recommended Citizen in our library talk, and I'm sure we'll talk about it today, but the focus will be on Don't Let Me Be Lonely, which was written 10 years earlier. They share the same subtitle, an American lyric, and also a similar form, um, both of which we'll talk about Mm -hmm. later on. So Claudia Rankin is one of America's preeminent poets and has published five volumes of poetry, two plays, edited several anthologies and is a poetry professor at Yale. She's also a 2016 MacArthur Fellow and has used the grant to establish the Racial Imaginary Institute. And in the What We Do section of their website, it says, We are committed to the activation of interdisciplinary work and a democratised exploration of race in our lives. The Institute will take the form of a moving collaboration with other collectives, spaces, artists and organisations towards art exhibitions, readings, dialogues, lectures, performances and screenings that engage the subject of race. And I I read all that just to give you a sense of the vastness of what Mm, they're doing. Yeah. And she's also collaborated on various audiovisual projects with her husband, the filmmaker John Lucas. And this book is a a poignant portrait of America post 9-11 and its powerful combination of writing on medicated depression, race, television, fear and death is expressed through a combination of forms. The predominant one being a visual essay which holds poetry, first person narration and visual art. And these forms repeat within the visual essay format and we keep returning to the narration of the speaker who is coded as a woman of colour and also seems to be a writer who lives in New York. This narration encompasses the larger concerns and themes of the book and can be seen as a personal lens from which we can view, for example, the pharmaceutical industry and medicalisation. Yeah, and some of it feels so autobiographical, but we know that Rankin contests that. So maybe we can say more that this narrator seems not to be a world away from the writer herself. And also maybe more, perhaps in a visual essay, she would even call the book just poetry. Mm -hmm. And maybe that word can hold all that the book contains you know in a way the book confounds any move to categorize it 
although it also offers its own formal category, the American lyric, which we'll get back to later. And there are certain things we could say about its historical context. So much of the book engages with experiences of living in New York in the early 2000s, during the post 9-11 era um, and the Bush presidency. Yeah, also we can address the role of the the voice of the speaker quickly. Mm. So for one, the text is written in the first person and there is a definite sense of a consistent eye throughout the book. Although, as with all the books we've talked about, that eye is by no means autobiographical. In Mm -hmm. fact, here it definitely isn't. And the speaker here is definitely more clearly defined than in Citizen, for example, in which the text is written almost fully in the second person, with potentially multiple yous being addressed throughout. But Don't Let Me Be Lonely opens with what seems to be a childhood memory of the narrator, so her first real encounter with death or with the grief of another, introducing us to a position that will recur throughout that of being a witness to grief and the idea that grief is a reminder of our aloneness. (laughs) Cheery. (laughs) Or loneliness. Yeah. Aloneness? Aloneness is different to loneliness. I mean, aloneness isn't necessarily a bad feeling. No. I think it's both. Yeah. Anyway, um, we'll get into the the nuances and resistances to interpretation created by the speaker as we go along. So it was it was pretty hard to figure out where to start with this book because in some ways it seems so impenetrable, and then at the same time it's so rich in content. So we thought we'd start with one of the most immediately striking parts of the book, which is the repeated use of the image of a television. This is immediately visually striking, but it also has a significance beyond the visual and in many ways is one of the most important figures in the book. So it's actually the first thing we see after the title page. It's a relatively small image near the bottom of an otherwise empty page. And in my original copy of the 2004 edition, the pages are much longer than those of a regular book. So the TV looks especially lonely and odd (laughs) down there at the bottom. And this is telling of the book as a whole, which makes great use of space, um, with many pages sparsely populated. And I also think it's worth adding that it's not just any TV, but an old-fashioned box TV with a static screen that is a familiar image to most of us, but probably won't be to those born in Mm -hmm. this century. And so we looked up TVs from the early (laughs) 2000s just to try and figure out if this image would have appeared dated at the time. And at the time of publication, people would have been beginning to buy flat screens, but many would still have had their big box TVs. And so this image has a sense of the used and the old to it. I mean, it's certainly not modern. And it might seem that we're being a bit fastidious about this TV, but it's it's such a dominant figure in the book and its specificity matters, okay? Yeah, that's fine. Um, So this framing of the image of the TV alone near the bottom of the page is repeated many times throughout the book almost breaking it up like chapters would. And it offers the most consistency of any kind, visual or textual, that we get throughout the entire book. But the TV is also used to hold images, so it's not always this static. The static TV kind of breaks the text up with regularity and then the TV with images is integrated with the text. So, for example, on the page where Rankin's writing about Werner Herzog's film Fitzcarraldo, there's an image of the main character kind of clutching at his head in a state of existential crisis. Yeah inside the TV, and here it's surrounded by the text, not on a page all alone. And most of these images that we see inside the TV are seen by the narrator of the book on her TV. Yeah, of course. So the TV's role isn't only visual, but 
is repeatedly written about and often functions as the bearer of bad news in the narrative. So it's through watching the TV that the speaker hears of or is prompted to think about contemporary events. For example, the speaker talks of entering her bedroom when the TV is on and seeing Abner Louima speaking. And Louima was a victim of a horrifically violent police brutality case in 1997. And also there's a moment in the book that describes how the narrator leaves the TV on all day in her bedroom while she's working at home and she kind of walks in and out of this bedroom and it really creates a sense of the TV's constant presence throughout. Yeah, it's kind of horrible to think of the TV just being on all the time, um, but it seems to be a comforting thing here yeah. as well. I, I mean, the TV and its shifting role are really central to my experience of the effective impact of the book as a whole. I find that something really difficult to articulate with this book because it's so effective, but it's also so strangely distant. And using this TV is such a striking way to start a book. You know, with this image of a solitary TV, you don't know where you are going or where you are as a reader. You're not expecting this. Mm. And I think it's jarring and maybe uncomfortable. But I don't know, how did it make you feel? I mean, in a way, it mirrors the kind of very obvious frustration you get from an actual fuzzy TV. I mean, mm. I don't even know if that happens with digital anymore, but um, is this feeling that there's some kind of information that's being obscured from you and that there is an image or knowledge that is out of reach, but that other people are able to see, hear or read. So it's worth thinking about what Rankin is obscuring from us, or rather what is she suggesting is being obscured from her or her narrator as well as us. Yeah, and as, w- as well as um, an absence or an obscuring mechanism, we can also think, like, what does the TV hold? Um, and by literally framing many of the book's images with- within the television screen, I wonder what kind of a role the TV is performing here. Mm. I mean, it's kind of like another speaker in the text, you know, in a way making its own poem through its collection of images, mm. uh, which is a very literary student thing to say but yeah yeah the role of the tv it is another way of imparting information as a kind of mute or silent speaker i think but to go back to the static version i almost think of the static image that's repeated throughout as being kind of like the the base of the poem and i can't think of a better way to Mm. describe that but kind of that it's representative of the overall tone or something it's what we keep returning to it's kind of like the the blank chapter break or the blank page of the particular context of the book and maybe the speaker's version of empty space or silence. Yeah, yeah, although a static TV is never silent. Right, of course. So maybe we could talk about what this could represent in Mm. text. So what is an image of sound? How does this image of sound act? And the sound of a, a static TV would be white noise. So what is this suggested white noise that runs through the book? And Mm. for me, I think that it's violence, whether explicit or implicit. I mean, both kinds exist in this text. And it is the kind of violence that causes all this loneliness and grief. So maybe this this kind of image of sound acts like a motif that reminds you of something. And in the end, maybe the TV has quite a sinister presence. Yeah. Also just thinking, maybe we can compare this engagement with the screen with that found in The Lonely City. Mm, Yeah. So in our episode on The Lonely City, we discuss how the screen is one of many forms of 
technology that enable a relief from loneliness. For example, for Andy Warhol, who had the TV on all the time mm. and sought to connect with the world through the television. Yeah, that's really interesting. In this book, there's definitely a desire for escape, but an acknowledgement that that is impossible. And this is displayed perfectly in the moment when Rankin's narrator describes watching TV late at night to help her sleep and counting the adverts for antidepressants. A very soothing <laughs> task, I'd imagine. And um, she closes her eyes to check if she's sleeping and is left in darkness with the white text from the TV screen staring back at her. And it says, your life is waiting. Mm. And in this scene, Rankin displays the ways in which we're constantly reassured, coerced, patronised by the rhetoric of TV and the pharmaceutical industry, as if one person's situation can be equated with any other, as if all these lives are waiting and you are one of many who will finally be able to start your life again. It's a detaching mechanism, a kind of universal address that offers this nondescript voice to connect to. Yeah, and but also here the television screen seems to offer a form of detaching as well mm. as attaching to the world, um, especially in comparison to you know, for example, how it works for Warhol in The Lonely City, who's went, who couldn't bear silence or couldn't bear not having the voices of others around him. Um, and similarly, the speaker seems to need it to be on all the time. And there's perhaps a desire to escape from the world here, or maybe a desire or a compulsion to escape interiority. Mm. Although maybe the more apt comparison to make is not between the two television screens in the two books, but between Lang and her laptop, and Rankin's narrator and her television, because both seem to have an ambivalent relationship with this screen with which they are most intimate. Yeah, and despite the fact that the TV is always there, it's not discussed by the narrator. Right. As, as a kind of, she doesn't talk about her experience of watching TV, it's just like fragments of moments where she happens to be mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah, like there isn't a discussion of the emotional relationship yeah. to it in the way that there, there is with Lang, for example. But of course, in Don't Let Me Be Lonely, the television isn't just represented in language, but in the repeated use of images. So we too, mm. as readers, are always with this television. Yeah, but in a way, I don't think Rankin is concerned with the form of TV so much as what it represents, which seems to be some kind of disconnect or rupture. So does it serve as this in the narrative too? And when she writes about Peckinpah's Western, The Wild Bunch, it's so dark and she yeah. uses it to highlight the constant presence of death and the inevitable failure of the American fantasy. So for the cowboys in this Western, she writes, quote, life and death are simultaneously equal and present. The simultaneity of the living who are already dead is filmed as sexy, end quote. And I love this line. It seems to hold so much of our conflicting relationship to TV the nostalgia, the desire, the longing for narratives to come right in the end and the frustration, dissatisfaction when they don't and also the broader kind of social structural fantasies that support these narratives and our feelings towards them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, maybe I'm getting a bit analytical now, but no, um, we could say that life and death are simultaneously equal and present in this text in the opposite way to the West in the Wild Bunch. So this simultaneity in the text is never sexy. Mm. And maybe that's interesting in relation to Rankin's writing too, because unlike all of the other books we've talked about, her writing is never seductive. Yeah. In fact, it's almost resistant. But this plays such a strong role in the way that we read the content of the book and ultimately gives us the feeling of fear that we're left with. I mean, maybe fear is too strong, but 
she does something similar to what she suggests the Wild Bunch does to the Western genre. And in yeah. this case, it leaves the viewer neither liberated nor fulfilled, she writes. So the American fantasy of good winning over bad disappears. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're left with a discomfort and a, a lack of resolution. Mm. I mean, I think you're totally right. This book, it doesn't allow us the release or the relief of thinking that, we're, that we can be free of the problematics that it raises um, or that a happy ending in the traditional narrative sense is possible, but it remains with them. It's it's like the opposite of cathartic. Yeah, definitely. And I'm super interested in this idea of the television as the conduit for political content. So the speaker describes watching the news after Bush's election. Bush, who, quote, can't remember if two or three people were convicted for dragging a black man to his death in his home state of Texas, unquote. And she finds herself speaking to the television, saying, quote, you don't know because you don't care, unquote as if the television, by holding his image, is representative of Bush mm. and all that he represents. So the TV becomes a kind of stand-in for the real issue or the, the real problem. Mm. And she's not saying these words to anyone, she's just saying them to the TV and to herself. But then, of course, also to us. And so Rankin here is making an indirect, as in the speaker to the TV, form of political expression direct by writing about it. Yeah. But I also want to think about the TV and how it's presented as a mode of escapism from precisely the world that is found pressing into the home through the news. So she writes about being able to choose what kind of stories and media you encounter, which also links to this universalizing that you mentioned, like the idea that each person's life could be fulfilled by a selection of available TV channels. And also the idea that if you can't buy the news, that's okay. You can disconnect and watch the independent film channel like the narrator does at one point. Yeah. Okay, maybe that's enough about the TV <laughs> for now. No. <laughs> I mean, we had loads of different things we wanted to talk about as usual, and we realised that they all come under the rubric of, or are related to, death mm -hmm. in some way. And... So, not that beginnings are always telling of a way a book is going to go, but the first sentence sets us up um, for this text to be all about death. And this line actually operates in a similar way, even though I said we weren't going to talk about TV, operates <laughs> in a similar way to the image of the TV in the sense that it is about absence, but the absence of death rather than the absence of an image. So the first line of the book reads, quote, there was a time when I could say that no one I knew well had died, end quote. And this immediately implies that what follows is set in a time where many people the narrator knows has died. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and the words death and dead occur perhaps more than any others mm. throughout the book. The speaker seems to be surrounded by death, both personally and socially. So maybe we could try and describe the scope of the presence of death in this book. Yeah, well... For one, the repetition of this word plays such a big role in terms of connecting the various strands of the narrative. So mm. pharmaceuticals and their kind of effects and the consequences of taking them. Deaths in TV, the deaths of people of colour, whether fictional or not. Mm. Um, the deaths of those surrounding the narrator. It's kind of the connective tissue between the varying content. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe, maybe one way for us to approach this question is to contextualise our reading and our discussion mm. of the book today. So we're reading this now. We're reading it having read Citizen and also recent articles written by Rankin addressing the contemporary political climate, you know, the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, 
and the question of police brutality and white supremacism in the US. So retrospectively, we read the content of her more recent writings into Don't Let Me Be Lonely. Yeah, and I think that could potentially be a kind of precarious move to make or something that I'm wary of, reading into things which aren't explicitly there. But I think in this case, it makes sense. It gives context to Rankin's other work, her writing and teaching, as well as her political work. To frame this book in such a way, I mean, it's impossible to read it as if it were in a vacuum and it's useless to do that. So to give an example of what we're talking about, in a New York Times article published in July 2015 titled The Condition of Black Life is One of Mourning, Rankin speaks to the significance of Emmett Till's mother's decision to give her son an open casket funeral and to allow photographs to be taken. So for those who don't know, Emmett Till was a black teenager who was brutally murdered by two white men in Mississippi in June 1955 for making flirtatious advances, really just talking to a white woman. Both his white male killers and also his accuser, who later retracted her accusations, were acquitted of all charges, and his death became one of the most famous cases of white supremacist violence in the US. So Rankin argues, and this has been widely argued, that in choosing to give her son, whose face had been disfigured beyond recognition, an open casket, Till's mother was making a stand against those who would have her hide her grief. And Rankin writes, looking back at this decision, her desire to make mourning enter our day-to-day world was a new kind of logic. So I think what I wanted to say by bringing up this article is that Rankin seems to be working with this simple but powerful act of making the mourning of victims of racist violence public. And this is a book in which the day-to-day world is filled with mourning, with death, and with the conflicting desires to both critique and also to look away. Mm -hmm. So I think integral to the attention paid to death in the book is this idea that a life cannot matter, which is something she writes about. And I really want to talk about a page that I think is sort of at the heart of the book. So this is just after the narrator has spoken to George Bush on the TV. And Rankin portrays the sadness of witnessing the election of a man who cannot remember the number of perpetrators in a racist crime. So, Rosie, could you read the quote? Sure. The sadness is not really about George W. or our American optimism. The sadness lives in the recognition that a life cannot matter. Or, as there are billions of lives, my sadness is alive alongside the recognition that billions of lives never mattered. I write this without breaking my heart, without bursting into anything. Perhaps this is the real source of my sadness. And then later down the page, she continues, Cornel West says this is what is wrong with black people today, too nihilistic, too scarred by hope to hope, too experienced to experience, too close to dead is what I think. And this is the last sentence on the page. And the man she's talking about is James Bry Jr., who was murdered by three white men on June the 7th, 1998 in Mm -hmm. East Texas. So even though it's poetry, there's always a specificity behind any poetic ambiguity, particularly when she is referencing events that actually happened. And here it's worth talking briefly about the notes at the end of the book, which unfortunately we don't have much time to go into, but these notes kind of make up the last section of the book and reference each page and kind of expand on points or moments that she talks about. And they have a really interesting function because as well as further detailing the true life events she writes of, they also include extra details about words she uses, illnesses she writes about and 
kind of give extra information about. And all these notes have a really interesting function because as well as further detailing the true life events she writes of, they also include extra details about words she uses, illnesses she writes about, and they give extra information about the possible content of her dreams. And Rankin has said in an interview that she wanted this to mess with the idea of truth even further. So whilst she's giving more information, she's not necessarily clarifying it somehow. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because there's we're offered so many different ways of reading but also of not reading Mm. um but yeah thanks for reading that quote and i i sense that these lines are really at the center of the book in some way so i'm thinking about judith butler here and her her attention to the idea of grievability um as a way of considering the different power structures affecting not only um life and death but also how these things are differently recognized and how they're differently mourned and this links into this idea of the idea that a life could not matter mm-hmm. and not not be mourned um but also to specifically pick up on her use of the word nihilism i mean obviously she's referencing cornell west here i would say nihilism is maybe abs- expressed in some way as absurdism in this book so and also nihilism for ranking is not what is wrong and definitely not what is wrong with people of colour, a very construction of terms which I think she problematises. And I wonder if within the book's particular kind of nihilism or absurdism or the feelings of such that can come with grief, there's a kind of hope. Yeah, I mean, I think Rankin is definitely not suggesting that there is no hope in nihilism. And nihilism here is a consequence of what is wrong. But where does this nihilism go in the text? And in the end, I think that the nihilism Rankin engages with is not left as a problem, but as an act of connection. On the last page, she uses a Paul Celan quote, which reads, I cannot see any basic difference between a handshake and a poem. And here, the handshake is an assertion of one's existence and an extension of recognition to another, a kind of, we are both here and I see you moment. And Rankin goes on to write that this conflation of the solidarity of presence with the offering of this same presence perhaps has everything to do with being alive. So interestingly, the book may be centralised around death and mourning, but ends by acknowledging the connections that reassure us we are together alive in this world. And to think of poetry as an assertion of existence between the poet and the reader, it makes me think of the collection of moments of death and mourning in the text as acknowledgements maybe a different kind of we Mm. are both here and I see you in the writing itself. And I think that it's useful to focus on all of these instances as they accrete as a kind of collective mourning, in a sense. Yeah, I think the book in itself is a holding place that both holds the uneven conditions within which lives are mourned and also does create this um, effective, overwhelming, collective kind of mourning. And there are so many iterations of grief in the book. There's the sense of being completely undone, of something being too much to bear. And I think this is especially clear when she writes about Giuliani's response to the number of deaths in the Twin Tower attacks as being more than we can bear and how this is an instance of, um, for once, actually appreciating something that he says. So she's also looking at what's around those words and what happens in New York after 9-11, the postage paranoia, we get the label of what to do if you get a piece of postage that looks suspicious, Mm. which includes almost any piece of postage, to which the speaker also becomes susceptible. But then what about those particularly highly personal parts? Like, what's the impact of the most strikingly 
fictional narrative thread of the death of the speaker's sister, of the death of the speaker's sister's husband and children in a car crash. So there's the line, why are we alive? My sister had a daughter and a son. Is she dead? Is he dead? Yes, they're dead. And this is so shocking. I mean, it comes out of nowhere. And we're told how they're, they sit on the floor in public places, their faces wet. And then again, Rankin's looking at, you know, what surrounds acts of grieving. Mm. The speaker gets in her car, gets on with her day. So grief is this thing that seeps into the everyday, but doesn't stop it continuing. Yeah. I think we also need to address the presence of what seemed to be the narrator's suicide. Yeah, it's so interesting because the first instance of this is a passage describing calling the suicide hotline, and it's written in the second person and is almost hypothetical. And this also links to the form of the book in a way. So how do we read the use of first or second person, and what does it change in the stakes of the book if we read it as a real suicide attempt of the narrator? Mm. And, I mean, is that even important or does just the potentiality of it work? Well, yeah, it definitely relates to what you said earlier about Rankin wanting to displace the idea of truth in the book. Mm. It's kind of challenging us to ask, well, why does it matter? But I think this second person passage is also written with such a distance and almost absurdism. And then the second time we're presented with what seems to be a suicide attempt, it's written in the first person. But it's part of a passage that directly addresses the question of the speaking I. And here I think the speaker comes closest to an idea of Rankin, a semi-autobiographical moment with the writer discussing with the editor about the speaking Mm. I in the book. I like this kind of messiness that's happening here. But again, not allowing us to make any easy assumptions about whose suicide, the potentiality of it being real, um, what's going on. Yeah. I wonder what these different modes of narration do. I mean, in a way, they flip the position of the reader on its head with this switch to the second person. Our empathy is displaced. So perhaps Rankin is reflecting on the kind of grief we have when things don't just happen to us, but to everyone around us all the time. And these different modes of narration call up the overwhelming impossibility of comprehending all the voices there are that can add to hers or ours or the speaker's. Yeah, no, definitely. And as well as this overwhelming presence of death, another sort of topic that has an impact on the overall tone of the book, as well as the TV, um, is the presence of antidepressants and the pharmaceutical industry and questions of self-medicalization. Yeah, this presence is, is felt in both micro and macro senses. So, for example, by the speaker, who is obviously a user of the healthcare system in America, and it's made clear that she has an obvious experience of taking various drugs or antidepressants. And then we also experience the pharmaceutical industry as one that is shaping the narrative from the outside in some way. So its effects and consequences are felt very heavily, particularly, as you say, in relation to the many deaths in the book. So the death and tragedy felt is somehow mediated through the presence of pharmaceuticals and Rankin's careful collection of images and the narrator's attitude and actions in relation to her self-medicating is a really curious thing and in one case she lists her actions towards some pills her doctor has prescribed her to aid sleeping and it's such a strange way to remember one's um, actions as if it's easier to examine your attitude toward them if it's written down in steps with little emotional connection and just factual information so it's, it's set out in a list and it reads a it turns out I decide not to take them b I put them in the bathroom cabinet 
and it continues um, like that for a while and it's not kind of resolved. You don't really know what she ends up doing with them yeah. or whether she ends up taking them or not. And yeah, it's so um, mundane and everyday, this kind of thing that it feels incredibly unpoetic but also fascinating. Mm. Um, and the particular effects of the images of drugs or you know the visual presence of the medical, it's a real example of how the mundane can be so shocking so on one page, there's a documentary-style photograph of a do-not-resuscitate label. And when I first saw this, I found it really affecting and kind of unsettling in its banality. Mm. And maybe that's partly because it's a photograph of a real DNR label, so it, it almost has this kind of trace of the hospital or the the real, the real death to it or something. Mm. And then there's also the long list of the pharmaceutical companies who filed suit against the manufacture of HIV antiretrovirals in South Africa. And their names are written in bold in in a two-page list that's so visually striking. And by publishing this list, it's like Rankin's calling calling these companies Mm. to account and calling them out. So there's a constant critique of pharmaceutical companies as well as there is an engagement with the personal relationship of the speaker to taking drugs as well mm-hmm. so in, again it's that kind of macro micro thing so I sense that there's also a relationship between the kind of political malaise of the early 21st century identified and also this desire to self-medicate and I think this is a link that Rankin's making but I feel really hesitant to talk about it you know hesitant to pathologize and also aware of the problematics of doing so from a place of relative ignorance but maybe that's where the specificity of the text's examples and also its lack of a clear argument comes in it's a poetic proximity of experiences more than it is a pathologizing of of america that takes place yes definitely i mean this is no small topic and the the kind of themes of pharmaceutical industry will come up again on our next episode so we haven't we haven't finished with that yeah. quite yet. But to come back to the topic of the day, which we haven't really left, to be honest, but to come back to death and its connection to other kinds of grieving um, and maybe thinking about whether we can grieve in loneliness, for example, mm. for our connection to others. So this focus on death in its many guises is an immediate reflection of the title. And I read this as Rankin stating, don't let me be lonely when you are all gone. So we could see death is taking up the place of loneliness in the text really but seeing as the word lonely is in the title what role do you think that it plays mm. yeah because it's don't maybe don't let me be lonely when you're all gone but it is also there's also a suggestion of the inevitability of that because when the lines used in the poem it's there's this um short dialogue that the speaker Mm. creates on a day when she can't do any other work and of course this turns into one of the most kind of powerful parts of the whole book but there's there's a conversation and one part of it one member of this conversation responds you'd let me be lonely in response to the other saying that they might die so as if letting me be lonely is the same as you dying Mm. um but I didn't think of reading the title that way at first I guess I just didn't connect those things and I think the ambiguity of the title tells us a lot about the book and you know the way that it's holding these these personal and political and historical instances and meanings of death and violence and the loneliness produced all together in one space, but not giving us 
a clear or linear way of linking mm. them. But I don't know, what did the title first mean to you? Because I, I read it as strangely flat, like a, a plea or a demand, but one with a restricted emotional urgency. I mean, I think I just read it like it was a line from the poem. It's such an integral part of the text, but also in combination with the subtitle, it situates the plea geographically. So don't let me be lonely, an American lyric. Mm, yeah. It then is an American cry of don't let me be lonely. And so maybe we could look to the subtitle now and, and talk about what a lyric traditionally is kind of quickly and what Rankine yes. does to it. So it was originally a form from ancient Greek literature and would be accompanied by a lyre and was one of the three types of poetry categorised by Aristotle. So these were lyric, epic and dramatic. I'm really rushing over the history of the lyric here, even butchering it, but jumping ahead in the 19th century in Europe <laughs> for the romantic, so Shelley, Wordsworth, the whole miserable lot. <laughs> the lyric was used as a first-person account by the poet and consisted of their personal thoughts and feelings in that specific moment, which is also how I think it's most commonly referred to today. Mm -hmm. And it's strange, but maybe useful to consider Rankin in this lineage, because in a way, this is what she is doing, though it's not autobiographical. Matty, what right. do you think about that? Well, I think in a very simple way, thinking about her poem in this lineage, especially thinking of it in comparison to the Romantics, it shows a pattern that all of the books that we're talking about on this podcast can be seen within, like, you know, that which declares that the personal is always political, but also that the personal doesn't have to be autobiographical. So I think this makes the solipsistic prolixity of those white men look rather silly. What a good takedown. <laughs> um, but I also think, yeah, like you say, we have to consider the American of this American lyric. And it's striking that any search of those terms, any search of American lyric, brings up results that are almost exclusively about citizens so it's very much her term but I really want to think about what she's doing by calling the books American lyrics and I'd say that everything that gets collated or becomes accumulated within the two books Don't Let Me Be Lonely and Citizen is therefore presented under the heading American and this seems to be a very powerful statement so maybe that the American lyric cannot not be political mm. Um, not that any national idea of poetry could not be. But specifically, it seems that she's challenging any oversimplification um, dominant in the post 9-11 era, the kind of with you're with us or against us attitude that she mentions in the book. And also she's showing that the racist violence identified by the book is integral to any idea of America in the same way that the notion of the American citizen cannot be considered without its racist yeah, history. Definitely. And also, just because I love it, it's kind of interesting to think about the television, and maybe now the screen or the digital more generally, as the accompanying actor in this lyric, instead of, say, the liar from which the genre derives its name. I mean, what is more American than the TV, she said so generally actually the tv was invented in my hometown um really? of hastings england yes there are, i feel so, like there are so many different stories because i tried to figure out where the first tv was and there were like one in america one in germany okay i won't categorically claim that i'm just putting it out there <laughs> um so but yeah matty this is such a good point i mean i think i'm excited about it because i'm a tv fan and i write about the tv but the idea that her poetry is accompanied by the tv is simultaneously so dark and so poignant and perhaps we could even see this accompaniment as being punctuated by white noise so 
there's no liar anymore. There's just this kind of stat- constant static yeah. um, and this repeated image of the TV that's on the cover. And maybe this static, in a way, reflects the this this nihilism, this losing of hope. Although we kind of decided that she doesn't lose hope, so maybe we shouldn't finish on finish the section with that. But it kind of also sheds light on the silliness and maybe the apolitical nature of wanting to just escape through a personal dialogue or you know a personal monologue about one's Mm. feelings without relating them to a larger context but yeah we're getting near the end of our episode and I think it would be worth speaking about the way that the book seems to invite us to read it because I think Rankin's doing something really interesting here so something we haven't spoken about um yet but that is such a big part of how I think the book asks us to read it is Rankin's use of an Amaze Césaire quote for her epigraph. And so this text is the first writing that you come across yeah. in the book. And just a bit of context quickly, uh, Césaire was a poet, author and politician from Martinique and he was the founder of the movement in Francophone literature called Negritude. And he also taught and heavily influenced um, Franz Fanon. And so this epigraph reads, And most of all beware, even in thought of assuming the sterile attitude of the spectator. For life is not a spectacle, a sea of grief is not a proscenium, a man who wails is not a dancing bear. So what I understand this quote to be saying in the context of this book is that you as a reader can never be a sterile spectator. You, by reading, are always implicated in and touched by this death, grief, violence, and that the reading and looking you undertake should not ever be gratuitous. Yeah, totally. It's really framing and introducing the book. It's introducing the reader to a reading experience. I think, you know, calling for us to be self-aware and to remember that the pain of the book is not a spectacle. I especially like that part, a sea of grief is not a proscenium. Mm. Um, I mean, when we read this epigraph, we already know that we're in for an experience. I think it's not just telling us that witnessing pain is not entertainment, but also that reading about the pain of another does not mean that we know that Mm. pain, that it's not there for us to only get something out of. And in this way, we're being asked to undertake a more self-aware act of reading. And I think this can be said for the presentation of racialized pain in Citizen too. Like reading Citizen doesn't mean that you can know what it's like to be a black man living in America, no matter how well the specific experiences are articulated Mm. by Rankin. And this is so obvious, but I think it's an important thing to say, and especially for white readers such as ourselves, to be aware of it. Yeah, definitely. And I I actually think that this is what most of the books we talk about or will talk about on the podcast do in a different way, which is to remind you, the reader, that, or us, the reader, that reading isn't knowing and that empathy can only go so far. Yeah, I think the book is definitely suspicious of empathy. And as well as challenging the reader, by which of course I mean myself, this epigraph also helps me to understand the speaker's interactions with grief Mm. and with witnessing the death and the grief of others. So I think Rankin explores this really well in the bit about the speaker's sister having to estimate the value of her deceased children's lives for an insurance adjuster and how she sought to understand the situation by reading an article about the process by someone named Adam Davidson. And maybe I'll just read this bit. So she's talking to her sister, and she writes, More than anything, I want to tell my sister about Davidson's piece, but I don't want to risk generalising her experiences. What I know, 
I know because of Davidson. What she knows, she knows because she is being made to perform a life I don't want to live. I ask the questions, all the ones Davidson has already answered. I think this is so characteristic of Rankin's writing. Like, she could leave it with the line that she knows because she's being made to perform a life that I don't want to live, which is so powerful, but also perhaps too simple. So instead she leaves us with that last sentence, the idea of asking the questions, ones that have already been answered, that I found hard to understand. Yeah, I think it's it really exemplifies her proclivity to kind of twist things Mm. for the reader so it's a nod to something you weren't expecting and she never falls prey to this urge to wrap things up nicely she leaves them complicated as they are yeah there's nothing ever didactic about the book it's not a toolkit for anything and I read Rankin say herself in an interview that she wanted the book to stay in the messiness Mm. which I really like but maybe as a way for us to wrap things up we can talk about our favorite parts of the book yeah Matty do you want to start yeah so I've been thinking a lot about the dreams in the book so there are four sort of mini dream narratives and I think these really contribute to what I would describe as the strangeness of the Mm. book so and they're so easy to forget about I mm, kind of forgot they existed yeah because there are other examples of moments of narration whose place in this book is hard to figure so that Mm. in a way you can that means that I would sometimes forget about them but So in one of them, she's dreaming about hiring a replacement mourner for her father's funeral and the strangeness of this. And then in another of these dreams, the speaker's with the Kennedys. And I love the line, all the Kennedys who are dead are dead. And then in the notes, Mm -hmm. you actually get a list of all the Kennedys who at that point of having the dream were dead and I think that this is such a strange insertion into this mm, text that amazing all this historical information in response to a fictional dream so also the dryness of this line all the Kennedys who are dead are dead is representative of the book in a in as a whole I would say but I also just love its situation within this surreal mm. dream and then in another she apologizes to everyone she meets for not knowing while she why she is alive which I think is another expression of the kind of existential crisis mm. going on in the book so these dream narratives aren't really distinct from the rest of the text in terms of their content or tone which I think is definitely telling not that the book reads like a dream but that it works within this deep and existential and odd and unsettling and maybe haunting Mm. place but what about you what are your favorite bits yeah I think one of my favorite parts is near the end where the speaker seems to offer a kind of solution to a problem or situation she presents so on the top of the left side of the page there's a small paragraph where she quotes fanny howe in her book tis of thee writing i learned to renounce a sense of independence by degrees and finally felt defeated by the times i lived in obedient to them and then on the opposite page there is a small paragraph at the top that i see in answer to this in a way where the speaker says, or, well, I tried to fit language into the shape of usefulness. The world moves through words as if the bodies the words reflect did not exist. This loneliness stems from a feeling of uselessness. So actually, in a way, it's not an answer at all, but I'm kind mm. of interested in this positing of statements opposite each other on a page as if a quest- in a question-answer format, but that never actually answer anything for you. They just leave things hanging. Yeah, and how easy it is to feel attached to a sentence and then read it again and, and be and like realize huh? it's saying the complete opposite yeah. of what you thought it was saying yeah 
Okay, so thanks for listening. Um, we hope to be quicker off the mark with our next episode on which we'll be talking about Paul Preciado's book Testo Junkie Sex, Drugs and Biopolitics in the Pharmacopornographic Era which is an explosive and very complex book that does incredible things with academic inquiry and what Preciado calls auto theory. Yeah I can't wait to get into that one. So as always we'd like to thank Lena Lewis King for our theme music and Steffi Rao for our gorgeous visuals And also thank you to the Soundberg Institute for letting us record in their brilliant studio. That's it for now. Until next time. Text to